Hi, I'm Al Kamihira, and you're listening to Subject to Power. We're back from our summer break, and this is our first episode of season two. So welcome, everyone. It continually surprises me to watch the ingenious ways that the patriarchy shapeshifts and comes up with ever new strategies to keep women trapped in permanent inequality and subject to male power. But none is as perplexing to me as the so-called prostitution debate. While it's not so much a debate anymore since the sex work is work belief is now accepted and institutionalized everywhere. In today's episode, I'm talking to someone who put her whole academic career on the line to shake up the so-called prostitution debate in the hopes that by shedding light on the lived realities of indigenous women and girls in prostitution, she would shift people's thinking about what prostitution actually is. And then she wrote a book about her experience and her analysis. Cherry Smiley is an indigenous feminist researcher, activist, and author from the Inklopamuk and Dine Nations. Her book is called Not Sacred, Not Squaws, Indigenous Feminism Redefined. And I'm very excited to share this episode because it is so full of really important conversation that it's not being had enough. We've got Cherry's story about taking on the sex work as work creed, but also the history of prostitution of indigenous women in Canada, as well as all the ways in which women are divided from each other to prevent us from building solidarity. Hope you enjoy our talk. I guess first off, I just want to know a little bit. I always want to know kind of the story behind the story. And mm -hmm. so maybe starting with what led you to want to study and pursue like academic research into prostitution. Story started, I guess, really young. So, you know, I grew up in a, a situation that I think is very common for a lot of Indigenous girls in Canada you know, in a household where there was a lot of uh, male violence and chaos and poverty and disability and, you know, addiction, all of that stuff. So there was a lot going on. Prostitution was something that was never that far away. And as I got older, I started to kind of reflecting or it was like everything that had happened finally caught up with me. And it was, it was like too much for me to deal with. And so I went through some really rough period and eventually was introduced to feminism through a feminist theory class where, you know, and this was a while ago. So we actually got to read texts by women like Dale Spender and these really wonderful radical women. And so it was in that, that I gained an understanding of my life and a way to talk about it. And so I understood that it wasn't my fault. I understood that other women were going through same or similar things. And so that really changed the, it saved my life basically. And it changed the course of my life was being introduced to feminist theory and that way of understanding the world. Cause it really is the only theory where it's not, it's not your fault. <laughs> as a woman and you know you're given this broader understanding too right so you're not you're not alone in it that kind of changed everything for me in the most like painful and wonderful way 
And so I ended up actually working at Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter, which they run a, a shelter for battered women and their children and a 24-hour rape crisis line, which was an inc- like amazing experience. Learned a lot about politics and, and organizing and how to do those types of things. And so I met a lot of really amazing Indigenous women in that process and did a lot of work with organizing with Indigenous women. And this was kind of around the 2010 Olympics that happened in Vancouver. So there was a lot of discussion about prostitution happening, a lot of statements being made in the name of Indigenous women that were not representative of Indigenous women and our politics. So there's a lot of organizing that happened around that. That was kind of at the same time or or shortly after there was a challenge to Canada's charter having to do with prostitution. So seeking to, to strike down the prostitution laws that we had at the time. So it became an issue that was very at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Just there was just a lot of public discussion happening on that issue. And for me, it was an issue where it very clearly demonstrates the intersection of of sex and race and class, undeniably so. I would say it's kind of where all of those issues converge and you can visibly see patriarchy, you know, and racism and capitalism work functioning at its best, I guess you, you would say. But for women, you know, it's the worst. So for me, it became a very important issue. I thought it would be easier. I thought people would be able to see, you know, what we saw in prostitution. And of course, that's not the case. <laughs> There's a lot of discussion and, and it's a very controversial and, and often hostile issue to get involved in. So there's all kinds of competing interests and things like that. But what happened was I I went back to school. So I did a master's of fine arts and my artwork, you know, it's a expression of not just who I am, but what I believe and what I think. And so I, I try very much to be in kind of the vein of, you know, radical feminist artists. And I remember having a discussion with one of my professors and she said that I, I wasn't abstract enough, you know, like people could tell the message that I was trying to send. I'm like, it's kind of the point. So I got to spend time making art and thinking about art as a political tool. And then I decided that maybe it would be a good idea to keep going and get a PhD. But I wanted to incorporate art making into the PhD process. I didn't want to just write like kind of your, your average unreadable, boring, (laughs) irrelevant (laughs) PhD thesis that just kind of sits there when it's done and nothing happens. So I ended up going to Concordia University in Montreal because they have a PhD program in communication studies that does let you incorporate art making into the, the PhD process. And then also, you know, I would produce something, something would come out of that time that I spent that could maybe be useful to other women or other women's groups who are working on the issue. I think the kind of sex work is work group are just pumping it out <laughs> out of academia, right? It's very one-sided. It's it's very, this is, you know, this is the way that it is. And so you have all this research and, you know, coming out all the time that's saying like, yeah, sex work is work. Like women love prostitution, blah, blah, blah. 
I know all these things that we know aren't, aren't true. And so I thought, well, maybe I could contribute to that discussion from that kind of academic perspective. That was, that was a long story, but. Uh, no, I love it. Thank you for that background. And you didn't realize that a book was going to come out of this, did you? Or I hope that it would. Um, okay. I mean, initially I went into the PhD wanting to make a documentary. So I started out using video and that was my plan initially was, was to make a film. And so I ended up changing that idea for a few reasons um, and ended up writing a dissertation. It's taken a really long time for me to get to the point where I'm pretty comfortable with myself. And I think that, you know, that comes with age and practice and <laughs> feminist action and, and theory where you, you learn to be comfortable with yourself. So when I was writing my dissertation, I, I wrote it in a way that made sense to me. It was never very academic-y from the start because that's not really me. I think that if you're writing something, you should write it so that as many people as possible can understand it. And if you know you don't understand what you're reading, it's not because you're stupid. It's because that person isn't being clear in their writing. I'm not um, somebody who does what I'm told to do just because I'm told to do it. <laughs> yeah, that comes through. <laughs> so you just published that in the last like year or so, and it's called Not Sacred, Not Squaws, Indigenous Feminists Redefined. And I just want to read a quote from the introduction to it, if I can. Sure. It says, this book is an action and it was born from the rage I collected completing a PhD dissertation on prostitution. It's not a thought experiment or a postmodern intellectual exercise or another boring man-centered man-study. This research refuses the woman-hating status quo. And, I, <laughs> and that made me want to, that made, made it a page turner for me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. I know. I think that's like the first sentence yeah. or two. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is going to be good. <laughs> uh, and so it kind of goes on from there, telling the whole story of your, what feels like a discovery process, but you want to talk a little bit about the story itself? Yeah. Oh man, it was rough. It was rough not to say that I didn't there wasn't good things because there were and there were good things that came out of the process of doing the PhD but I know that I, I started the PhD thinking that I would become an academic and I would hopefully work at a university be a professor in a university and that's what I would do and so uh no that's not what I'm doing I don't want to do that anymore I don't think academia would have me if if that's what I wanted so so yeah, so some things were great. I don't mean to shit all... Can I swear? Please Okay, swear. so I don't mean to shit all over it because there were really amazing things that did happen. Somewhere in the book, I say that the PhD process nearly killed me. And that's real. That's a very real statement. Uh, there's a number of things that happened that were very, very difficult for me to deal with. But the thing that I find maybe frustrating is more the right term, is being questioned on that statement. Maybe you're blowing that a little bit out of proportion. And I'm like, no, no, that, that's real. That actually happened. And at the same time, knowing that when people say, you misgendered me and now I'm going to kill myself, nobody asks them, like, aren't you blowing things a little bit out of proportion, right? 
they just get to make whatever those statements they are and they're fully believed. And so I think for women and especially for Indigenous women, like this process of academia is just a lot more painful and especially for feminist. And then you add the other layer of, of being a, a radical feminist or a feminist woman on top of that. And then not to mention choosing a research subject that is one that is very controversial that I knew going into was not going to be easy, that I knew there was a lot of hostility towards in academia. But, you know, I do think that doing a PhD or, or having any kind of like formal education like that is a, it is a privilege and that you should do what you can with that privilege so that it doesn't just benefit you in terms of getting a PhD and, and letters behind your name, but that it actually benefits other women in the process. I mean, I could have chosen many other subjects and topics that would be a lot less controversial and would have been a lot easier on me, but this I felt was really important. And so away I went and dealing with that kind of really awful, painful academic process, being a feminist indigenous woman, but then at the same time, life doesn't stop outside of university. And this is where I, I, there was a lot of struggle as well. Is this desire for universities to like indigenize their academy or whatever. And that really translates to like, let's make dream catchers and like have beating circles. And that's fine. You know, that's great. I, that, you know, if that helps you, wonderful. But it's not really making like a real impact. It's not actually looking at, okay, there's, you know, going to be Indigenous women in this university who are the point person in their communities, who are dealing with women who are calling them to make safety plans, women who are calling them because they need to make a missing persons report, women who are calling them because their fathers are raping their daughters and they need to figure out what to do. Not to mention this ongoing struggle with you know, addiction and overdoses and suicide and poverty and everything you can think of. None of that stops when you start a PhD. It's ongoing. And so I thought it would be more useful to perhaps have very robust scholarships for Indigenous women, but also, for example, to have like a department where they can help you make a missing person's report. A lot of people don't know how to, how to do that. So if you need to do that in your time as a student at the university, how can the university support this kind of ongoing crisis? So I always thought that that would be more useful um, than, you know, beating if they're looking at actually supporting Indigenous women to not just get into the university, but to finish, which is a whole other discussion. Probably the best thing that came out of it was I realized that I, about halfway through, that I was doing it all wrong. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think like self-reflection is a, it's a very powerful thing, which is, I think it's a good thing, but you don't want to take it too far where you're like, oh my God, I'm wrong about everything. Cause that's what we're taught to do as women. But so I realized about halfway through, so I'd been thinking about prostitution as a form of colonization of indigenous women and girls in Canada. And then I realized, wait a minute, what is colonization? So I went and looked it up. We, we throw the word around all the time in Canada. It's become kind of abstract to, to some people, very real for others. 
So I looked it up and then I thought, wait a minute, like who decided that this was colonization was? And I was like, oh, right, men. Mm. Men like came up with this definition of colonization. And when that happens, as we know from, you know, women like Dale Spender and others, we're not to Klein, Susan Hawthorne, Audre Lorde, (laughs) Andrew Dworkin, all of these women, these incredible women, they centered themselves. And so I began to redefine colonization, which other women had, had begun to do, women like Robin Morgan, for example. So to redefine colonization as a primarily a sex-based practice instead of a race-based practice, but then also pulling into that race and class inequalities and, and how those played out. And so that was huge for me. It, what it did was it made me realize, I'm like, oh, dang, nobody's going to like my book now, <laughs> which was fine. Because uh, I'm like, oh, boy, I think I'm going to piss everybody off. But it was because I, I used to say that patriarchy was imposed on Indigenous communities. And now I say that patriarchy was adopted by Indigenous men. That kind of, I think, demonstrates the change in my thinking kind of very clearly. But it does mean that I, I do break with other, you know, Indigenous feminists, Indigenous feminist theorizing, which can be a very lonely place sometimes. Yeah, so this change in that orientation and kind of breaking with that kind of orthodoxy, how did it change your course? I mean, it disrupted everything, which is a good thing. So I had a a committee, my normal academic committee, wonderful women. And then I had a committee that was like a women's committee. So outside of academia. And the women on that committee were very insistent that I make sure to tell the stories of Indigenous women who have been harmed by Indigenous men, because that's something that's very, very difficult to talk about. And it is something that in kind of all of my work before this, I wasn't able to account for in the definitions of colonization and what we were being told about it, you know, and how it works. I couldn't explain it. So I really did have to kind of question my own like fundamental ideas about processes like colonization, like male violence against women and girls, like how that functions, what it does, why. So I really had to question what I believed. And it took a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to hold men accountable, period. I think for any woman. But there's an extra layer. There's very particularities that happen when it's an Indigenous man. And that becomes more difficult you're going to likely be more on your own as a woman or an indigenous woman, for example, if you're, if you're taking that on, a lot of people are going to turn against you. And so to kind of theorize about that, I guess, and to, to say like, wait, no, 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 (laughs) like you don't get to blame, you know, other men for doing shitty man things. People don't want to hear that men, especially they don't want to hear that. And because of the, you know, the stereotypes that are out there and all of those kinds of things, there's just a lot of pressure on women to just stay silent. Don't air your dirty laundry. Don't tell anybody, you know, keep these secrets. So the pressure on Indigenous women is huge. One one of the things that I learned as well was looking at the differences between Indigenous women and white women. 
we hear a lot of statistics, especially in Canada, where, you know, Indigenous women, for example, are more likely to experience male violence than white women Mm. are. I think that really the statistics should say, like, men are perhaps more likely to target Indigenous women, (laughs) you know, as opposed to this idea that white women have it better somehow. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that those differences weren't fundamental differences, but more particularities. And so the particular ways that male violence against women, for example, functions for Indigenous women, that's the difference. Not that it's a fundamentally different type of male violence from against white women. So recognizing those kind of commonalities and as a result of that, looking at the ways that women have been separated from each other and have been discouraged from looking at those similarities uh, and instead have been encouraged to look at the difference and pretend that it's something totally different so that we don't get together and cause trouble. Yeah. Form solidarity between us. Mm -hmm. God forbid. So you, you do talk about one of the kind of big issues you had that you encountered with your research was that you do look at prostitution as a form of male violence against women. And that got pushed back. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) I mean, academia is a very hostile place, but it's only a very hostile place if you kind of step out of line. If you're like a good little Indian and you show up and you say what they want you to say, you know, it's still going to be painful to some degree, but, you know, you're going to get through and it'll be fine. Everybody's going to like you and (laughs) offer you jobs and opportunities and all kinds of things. Right. But as soon as, you know, you show up and you don't, you don't pair it back to them, what they want you to say or what they expect you to say, that's when the trouble starts. And it realized in a lot of different ways. One of the ways was bullying from a staff member at the university who I tried to hold accountable, but they uh, refused to do anything about that. I had Other individuals tell me that perhaps they had raised my name as a a potential speaker and was just told, no, she's a turf or she's a swerf. We're not we're not even going to consider her for this. I was very much on the out on the outside. And it was just wrong. This is wrong. Like It was just wrong and it was mean. (laughs) And uh, so I became very anxious and nervous. You know, I'm worried people are going to come up and confront me. I'd heard rumors that that's what was going to happen. And I did have threats to my personal safety. So there were times where, you know, I had to have kind of escape plans. If I was going to speak somewhere, I had to think about what I was going to do if somebody came and tried to physically attack me. Where are my exits? How am I going to get out of the room? Like these kinds of things. And it's messed Mm -hmm. up that that becomes normal. And I know that that's the situation for other women academics as well, other feminist women academics as well. We end up spending a whole lot of time just figuring out how to do our day-to-day work in the academy. And we're doing it without the support of the university at all. So, and I mean, the, like the debate, like that's, that's cool. That's fine. Like, let's do it. (laughs) You know, even having, coming at it with a lot of emotion, I think that that's a very like human thing, a very you know, as a woman to, you know, feel that really viscerally and have emotions and feelings and be really 
fucking pissed off about what's going on. Like that's all of that is that's cool. That's not where my criticism lies. It's in the other stuff where you're being silenced, you're being bullied, you're being discriminated against. And all of this is happening in the university to really kind of push you out and make it that much more difficult for you to even get to the table. So this was a count of not going along with the sex work is work mantra and mm-hmm. not going along with trans women are women. Not jumping on that train on either of those trains makes life much more difficult. And it's mm. it's kind of sanctioned. That really shitty behavior is sanctioned by the university because they don't do anything about it. They just kind of let it happen. Yeah. But what makes me just like really scratched my head, like the trans thing, I kind of get because of the kind of a phenomena that it's become. But that sex work is work is so sacred that an academic can't say, well, I'm going to explore the fact that this is a form of male violence that Mm -hmm. becomes like, no, we got to shut that down. Yeah. Like unacceptable. And I think a lot of these kind of messed up ideas that people have has come out of academia, but this whole idea of, of violence and what is violence and what isn't has been so messed up, like offensively. So I would say by universities that they'll say, looking at prostitution as a form of male violence against women is violence in itself. I'm like, that is no, that is not violence, you know? And so it's this, like this idea that you're, and I've I've had that where people have said that I was violent. I was a violent person. And so watch out if you ask me to speak somewhere and women are afraid of me. And I'm like, oh my God, come on. (laughs) Like You're afraid of me, but you're not afraid of like those like asshole rapists over there. Like, okay. Um, So it just gets totally twisted. And that just makes it much more difficult, again, for women to speak out about the actual violence, the actual male violence that is happening to them versus a political disagreement that some may get all butthurt about, but that is not actually violence. Yeah. And I mean, you went much farther than that. You went into even more taboo subjects, but just the fact that the kind of gate comes down you can't talk about prostitution in any way, but like a common good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I wanted to just circle back to the notion you talk a lot about in your book about the impartiality creed in academia, where you're supposed to be neutral and impartial and all this stuff. And you, I think, very consciously went up against that And it's an interesting, the whole story is interesting. But can you talk a little bit about like what you encountered and what your pushback became? Sure. Yeah. So this idea of like being neutral or doing neutral research or impartial, I mean, it's all bullshit. It's impossible. And it shouldn't be seen as the goal or as something desirable because first of all, it's not true. I mean, and second of all, even if you could achieve it, like why, why would you do that? So it, it is in my mind really about recognizing where you come from and how all of your experiences in your life are going to shape the research that you're doing. And it's going to start with shaping what issue you decide to research. 
you know, and so we, we talked about that earlier, right? So why did I decide to research prostitution? Like, well, there's a whole long story behind that. And then what questions you're going to ask and how you're going to ask them and who you're going to ask them to and all this kind of stuff. And then the analysis that you're going to use to analyze your answers to those questions that you've asked. And, you know, you're going to be putting things in and leaving things out. And that's just the reality of being a human, being a woman. So I use theories of women's studies. Like that's like, that was like my like feminist Bible, basically, that I used. And it just, again, it, it changed my life, that book. So it's a very old book, but it is so relevant, probably even more relevant today than it was then and really lays out a path for doing feminist research. And that feminist research really does see that, that subjectivity. So see that all those experiences and feelings, all of those things that we have are seen as an asset to the research as opposed to a liability. So it's seen as a strength, you know, and so an acknowledgement of that and then using that, I think really gives space for women to do research that matters to us, but also research that actually does something in the end. Research for research's sake is just so stupid. Like what a waste <laughs> of time to just, you know what I mean? It's like, you really, you really should want something productive to come out of this, mm -hmm. you know, besides you get your degree. It's kind of interesting because you read that in other indigenous research or decolonizing research. So Margaret Kovach or Linda Tuey Smith have both written these amazing books about these different kinds of indigenous or decolonizing methodologies. There's pushback on that, of course, but I'd say it's generally more accepted in academia than this idea of feminist research. That's kind of like, oh, don't go there. That's outdated and bigoted and all these lies that they make up about what feminists fight for, right? And how they do it. But it also, I think it's very clear and you can see it with a lot of the prostitution research and Erin Graham, in her dissertation, she talked a lot about um, harm reduction and uh, looking at what the city of Vancouver was, their policies of harm reduction around prostitution and how that was actually harming women. So she noticed, and it's true, that a lot of the prostitution research comes from a, a public health perspective. So it's a very narrow research perspective that asks very narrow questions and ignores everything outside of those questions. And it pretends to be neutral and it pretends to be evidence-based and like scientific, you know, and it's like the ideology of sex work is work is like embedded in that. So it's like, just be honest about that, that that's what you think. And then now you're doing this research and it's confirming what you think. You know what I mean? Like, but instead they pretend that they're finding all these women who like love sucking the dicks of men whose dicks they don't want to suck, which doesn't make any sense at all. But yeah, so you see that very clearly in the research on prostitution that comes out about that, where it is ignoring so much. Because if you really listen to what women are saying, regardless of what they're saying, you're going to hear the realities of prostitution in that. But it is hard. I remember so I was in one of my, my courses and everybody had to share their like little research plan or whatever. So I shared mine. And the professor was like, how is what you're doing even research? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's research. Because uh, I'm sitting here. I'm pretty sure we're all doing research at this point. So it's just this whole idea that it's not even, it's not valid in any way if you're choosing 
basically like a feminist methodology, which is a legitimate, valid, you can disagree with it all you want and like, go ahead. But that doesn't change the fact that it is a valid form of research and a valid way of thinking about the world. It makes me think that so the neutral, and, and I love your word, manstitution, for academia, which is so, so true. Like what's neutral and impartial is male conceived or conceived Mm -hmm. by men. So then when you put a feminist lens on it, and especially looking at something like prostitution, which is so (laughs) female centered, I can imagine the manstitution just getting up in arms. But you also raise another really important point is that the difference between studying prostitution and experiencing prostitution. And I think when you read like research reports about prostitution by people who have not experienced it, it looks so very different than reports from survivors of prostitution. So can you talk a little bit about the whole chasm between the experience and the research? It's huge. And it's what it does, I think, is is even kind of bigger than prostitution. So Borkin talks about, you know, when you're talking about prostitution, you're talking about the idea of prostitution and ideas are fun to talk about. Right. And she contrasts that with with the reality. And so this like abstraction of prostitution and we can see that with the abstraction of, of violence, the definition of violence. What is violence? So academia is just like confusing the heck out of everybody (laughs) instead of making things more clear it makes things less clear but what I find is that with that kind of abstraction of prostitution as sex work and as a service sex as an obligation by women sex as an entitlement for men all of these things that the sex work is work perspective has to agree with in order for that ideology to kind of make any kind of sense I think this very like offensive language that's used to describe prostitution that doesn't actually describe it at all. I think what it does is feminist women, they think that academia is the problem. The theory is the problem, but it's not. Like theory, as Marilyn Fry says, theory is just a way to understand the world. And so a good theory makes sense of the world. And a bad theory is when you have less understanding of the world and you're more confused. So there's this idea that theorizing work that you're doing, that that in itself is the problem, but it's not. It's the way that that's been twisted and basically used by men to legitimize the subjugation of women and girls. It's real. It's like you have to really think about what that means, like how you're being penetrated. You're being penetrated by men that you, a man you probably wouldn't even touch with a 10 foot pole, just some dude, you know, And he's sticking all kinds of things inside of you. He's saying all kinds of things as he's doing that. And they're not nice things. (laughs) It's not in a loving way or in a gentle way or any of these things. It's none of that, right? It's none of that. But the whole, all the, the sex work vocabulary just totally whitewashes the whole thing. So makes it like sound not that bad, really that act of male violence itself 
you know, having to engage in sex acts with a man who you don't want to engage in sex acts with, you know, and then you have all of the other types of male violence, getting punched in the head, getting stabbed, getting burned, or the threat of all of those things, not making it out of that encounter alive. So it's like, no, that is, is violence. <laughs> that is male violence. Women being penetrated uh, against their will. And outside of prostitution, we call that rape or sexual assault. When you're engaging in a sex act that you do not desire it. And so, because it's not pretty, it's not whatever difficulty or distress you're feeling hearing that description, like imagine what that woman is feeling who's, who's going through that. So women who have come out and who have the courage that it takes to talk about male violence that has happened to you in your life, whether it's in prostitution or not, like to actually like say it and have it go out into the world is like immense. It takes so much courage to do that. And then what you see happening is, you know, sex work activists will then say, well, this woman, what she's saying, that's not representative. That's not actually what happens. That doesn't happen to every woman, blah, blah, blah. So all of these things that they say just totally dismisses this woman and how important this woman is. And the, the things that she has to share, how important it is that we hear that. So it becomes very, very anti-woman. And these women are dismissed in this, this prostitution debate itself. It's like sex work activists feel very entitled to tell women that they're not representative, to tell women that they're wrong, to tell women that, you know, this was their experience. They can't look at that on a larger scale, basically that they're wrong. So I can't imagine, I mean, I can't imagine how hard that is for women to finally get the courage to say something and then just get shit all over for saying that because you're not the right kind of sex worker or you're like, you're not the right woman to speak about what has been done to you. And I do think it, it scares a lot of women and then w women become less likely to speak up and to say, this is what was done to me because they're not going to be believed. Mm -hmm. I, I do mention it in the book as well. Oftentimes we'll hear is you're not a sex worker, so you can't be in this discussion. Or they'll say, well, you're not a current sex worker, so you can't be in this discussion. Or, you know, so they'll come up with all these reasons why women are not allowed to speak on this issue. And I think that does a few things. One thing that it does is I think it pressures women to come out and to say that they were in prostitution. And maybe they don't want to say that. But because they're a woman, they have every right to be involved in this discussion about the oppression of women by men. Like you shouldn't have to give your horror story as your ticket to talk about an issue that impacts you. So I find that very frustrating. You should not have to reveal anything. And what you have to say is legitimate on this issue. And that's it. Like end of that's it. You're allowed to have an opinion on this issue. And in your research, you heard from enough or talked to enough women who had exited prostitution to get a fair idea, yeah, of a picture of what their experience, there were some patterns that you could mm -hmm. see, yeah. Yes, patterns that I could see and patterns that the women themselves saw in what happened in their lives and how they ended up 
where they were. And part of that, and again, I think it's only a feminist methodology that in that process tells women it's not their fault. Like you haven't done anything wrong. Any other methodology or theory that you're going to use to look at prostitution is going to blame her at the end of the day. (laughs) So the, the feminist theory and methodology is the only way really to look at prostitution where women are not wrong. Women are not at fault. This is a larger issue that is outside of women's supposed moral failings or whatever. The other thing that I think this idea that you can't speak unless you meet like this particular criteria puts it into kind of like experience versus experience. So a woman could come out and reveal the realities of prostitution and be like, I, you know, this was awful. This was so painful for me. And a woman could come out and say, well, I loved it. You know, I just love it. I, I love getting fucked in every hole all the time by (laughs) men that I don't want to have sex with. Right. And so what do you do? All right. So that's her experience. That's what she thinks of her experience. Okay. Can't really say, okay, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't your experience. But you can disagree with her analysis of that experience. And so as feminist women who are prostitution abolitionists, that that's the level that we're thinking things through. Not to say that you're lying, you know, and you're wrong for saying that you love this. Sure. But that doesn't mean that. (laughs) Doesn't mean that because you like something, that something is good. Or that you claim to like something and that means that something is good. I think I mentioned that in the book that rapists will be like, well, I like rape. I like to rape women, but we don't decide as a society then that rape must be good because men like it. So it's really important to kind of think about that, the experience and then the analysis of the experience as two different things. And it really does let you engage. It it assumes that women are smart and capable and that you can have a political disagreement with this woman because she is smart and she is capable. I I find this even kind of within feminist abolitionists, even within our own kind of groups and communities that there's this idea sometimes that survivors are are different women somehow. So it's almost like we've created sometimes a, a different category of woman. And I think that that's been a mistake. And so like in the way that like, you know, sex worker, again, it doesn't say woman, it, it totally degenders the whole thing. It makes this like other category of other woman. Yeah. And I also think what's lost in the sex work is work conversation. And maybe in the prostitution debate overall is that the poverty that kind of drives prostitution. Mm -hmm. That's just completely out of frame for the most part, that we're dealing with a symptom of poverty And that is through the ages of prostitution and why Rachel Moran, who said the way to deal with a hungry woman is not to put a cock in her mouth, but give her food to eat. Uh And so that's kind of so, so very lost in this whole debate, I feel. Uh But you do talk about the history of prostitution as it pertains to Indigenous women particularly. And I think it's an interesting chapter where you talk about how it started, because it's an, a European product, isn't it? Can yeah. you talk a little bit about the origins of prostitution in Canada? I think it's pretty safe to say that prostitution didn't exist 
here before white men came over or for the most part didn't exist. We know that through stories and that kind of knowledge, but we also know that because I have yet to come across an Indigenous language that had a word to describe prostitution. So they had to come up with new words to describe that kind of interaction. So that kind of makes sense. If you don't have a word for it, it probably didn't exist. I think while we can generally say it it didn't exist in Canada, there's no evidence that that it existed in Canada. Uh, That's partly because I know my grandma would say, because when I'd ask her about old people, the old people, she'd tell me about the old people. It was funny because I have to ask her in the right way. I'd be like, what do you think? And she'd be like, oh, I don't know. I'd be like, what did the old people think? And she's like, oh, well, they thought this and this and this. So she said that, you know, if you were hungry, you went and hunted or you gathered food and you ate the food. If you were thirsty, you went to the river and you drank. If you didn't have a house, you went and built a house for yourself. So women had the knowledge, but not just the knowledge, but the access and the ability to be autonomous and to take care of ourselves. We didn't just know how to do it. We were actually, we were able to do it. Women didn't have things taken away from them in the same way that we do now in this like capitalist world where now you have to trade something for something. You were able to sustain yourself, you know, and to, and to sustain others. So, I mean, just kind of knowing that, like, just that takes away a whole lot of context that is required for prostitution, right? Like women need something and men have it. So you know, how can women get what they need from men? The other issue, I think, when you think about all the like explorers and whatever, those dudes, the the point is that they were all dudes. Christopher Columbus, like all of these guys, they were all men and they were sailing around because I don't know, they wanted things. And it's not that they wanted things that they didn't have because they had things. They wanted more. It wasn't women who were leading these expeditions. Like white women were brought over to Canada later on, not of their own free will. And they were treated as the property of men, which is, hasn't really changed that much. So these men are like, okay, well, we've already like colonized these women. So they're, you know, they're our property. So now we're going to go find more because we want more. So it was this idea of entitlement that they were entitled two more, they deserved more. And so they were going to go and take it. That kind of, I think, fundamental idea of entitlement was not common in Indigenous cultures. It was a a more kind of relational relationship. (laughs) And then when you have entitlement, somebody's obligated to fulfill that. And that for white men, that was white women became obligated then to fulfill whatever they wanted. So there wasn't that same like fundamental value of entitlement and obligation that existed in Indigenous communities. So it was a very different way of looking at the world. My understanding is that's the same in New Zealand, that's the same in Australia, that's the same in the United States, is that there's no evidence that prostitution existed before white men came on over and uh, did their thing. Yeah. yeah. And so how... Obviously, white or European men targeted Indigenous women specifically for prostitution. How did that come about? Well, it came about partly because for the first however many years, white women were not allowed, 
were not here in Canada. So the only women that these dudes had access to were Indigenous women and, and Indigenous girls. And so I think that, and this is, you know, controversial. People will have feelings about this, but whatever, I think it's true. You do see examples of, of prostitution occurring between white men. Perhaps they were members of the police. So they called the Northwest Mounted Police at that time or Indian agents who were white men who were kind of in charge of groups of, of Indigenous people would go in and perhaps trade food or, you know, other kind of like basic necessities, trade that for sexual access to Indigenous girls or Indigenous women. And I think that in that process, you can really see a clear example of the adoption of patriarchy by Indigenous men in that transaction. Because the Indigenous men realized there was an immediate something in here, in this deal for me. And I don't have to go through what she's going through. And the woman, I'm sure, felt pressure if this was the only way to get what her family needed, how able was she to say no? <laughs> Not very able at all for many different reasons and many different pressures. But I do think, you know, you kind of see that that collusion between the beginnings of that kind of collusion between white men and Indigenous men in facilitating that prostitution of Indigenous women and girls. Mm. And that has kind of entrenched itself from that point forward? It just got like worse and worse. It was actually in Canada, the first laws around prostitution were actually in the Indian Act. So the first prostitution laws only applied to Indigenous women and men. And even though it was Indigenous peoples, they weren't applied to Indigenous men. So they were only applied to Indigenous women. And their definition of prostitution was so broad that basically any woman, any Indigenous woman could be charged for being in prostitution. Uh, and eventually the prostitution laws went into the Criminal Code of Canada, so then they applied to everybody. But yeah, there is that understanding that initially this was presented as an Indigenous problem. And what's also kind of, I guess, not surprising is that those laws in the Indian Act, they didn't try to stop prostitution. They just were more interested in where it could happen, like in what area, in what contexts. So those white men making those laws were not interested in, you know, denying themselves sexual access to women and girls. They just wanted to make sure it happened in places that they deemed more appropriate. Mm -hmm. And you talk about, too, the sort of the wholesale cultural sexualization of Indigenous women in opposition to white women, that there kind of was created this... Well, you, you explain it better. Yes. So I really used a lot of Sarah Carter, Sarah Carter's work. She really talked about how Indigenous women were kind of constructed as squaws and like wild and like sexual monsters and were blamed for turning men, including indigenous men into baddies, whatever kind of baddies they were deciding that they were. So indigenous women were, were constructed as, as these like wild sex, crazy squaws. And in contrast to that, 
white women were constructed as very like moral and in need of protection and very fragile. And so what I love about Carter is that she's like, both of those things were lies. Like neither of those constructions of women were based in reality. The reality was that obviously Indigenous women aren't like sex-crazed maniacs who are inherently dangerous. That's not the case. And it's also not the case that white women, especially at that time, were like very fragile and in need of protection because they were out there in Canada and they had to friggin, they were doing very like physical labor. It was not easy. It was not an easy life for these women. So neither of those constructions were true, but these stereotypes were created by men and they were used by men as well to separate and make sure that indigenous women and white women weren't getting up to all kinds of trouble. So again, like using that as a way to divide women from each other, but also using that as this lie that, you know, white women are so fragile and in need of protection that we have to then make all of these laws to contain these like savage squaws. So using that as a justification as well for what became Canada. And so recognizing, I think that like how important women were and the ways that women both white women and Indigenous women were used in that process of colonization, I think is something that is just so important. And we don't talk about it enough. And we just talk about colonization always as if it's a degendered process, as if all like colonizers are the same. And you you do talk about that in terms of like, the conversation can easily become about land rights and religious rights and cultural mm-hmm. rights. But like you said, that's a very degendered, very gender neutral way of looking at it that misses women. Mm-hmm. And feminism, again, like feminism, the only theory, the only political movement that always centers women and takes into account women and their needs and their histories and all this kind of stuff and why feminism I think really helps us, gives us a lot of answers to questions that we wouldn't be able to answer without having that, that lens, you know, that framework for, for thinking about the world. And I mean, and I think that this has been an ongoing problem for sure in terms of like indigenous rights, you know, in Canada, but globally is so about indigenous men, indigenous women are left out of that discussion or kicked out of that discussion or whatever. And you hear that all the time, you know, well, it's all about the land. And it's like, no, it's not all about the land. (laughs) There's other things that are important as well. And also this idea that I think women's rights are separate from culture. Like we need to be looking at Indigenous women's rights as separate from Indigenous culture, because sometimes those two things are going to come butt up against each other. Just because it's an indigenous cultural tradition doesn't mean that necessarily mean that it's not discriminatory towards women. So it's really looking at how indigenous women can criticize our own culture and our own cultural traditions when other women are, you know, encouraged to do that. It can be harder for indigenous and, and black women and other racialized women to be open and be critical of, of our own culture and, and to do it and to have other women stand with us is um, sometimes very difficult. Yeah, I think you get a whole question of loyalty 
to your people comes into play, which does not come into play in white feminism. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think, too, that racism and classism, of course, that exists in the feminist movement, for mm -hmm. sure. It's a matter, I think, more of accepting that it that it is real and it does happen and coming up with strategies to deal with it is just a million times better than denying <laughs> that it exists because it does. But for me, what I've seen and experienced is uh, white women, some well-known white women academics have said to me, you can't talk about male violence from Indigenous men, you know, and you can't talk about that because the justice system will come down harder on them because it's not their fault. It's colonization's fault because of the racism stereotypes. So you, you can't talk about that. And for me, that's what I see as a display of, of racism towards Indigenous women, is that when, when we need the solidarity of white women, when we're doing something that's very scary and very difficult, and we're sticking our necks out there, we just want white women to stand beside us while we're doing that. And in so many cases, they won't, because they're afraid of being called racist. They're afraid of sent actually centering women one of the major, I would say, expressions of, of actual racism within the women's liberation movement is when we step out of line, sometimes we're doing it and we're all by ourselves. Yeah. And so what is happening there? Is it that white women fear themselves that the white patriarchy is going to punish them for standing with indigenous women. Like what I, I'm just trying to understand, like, what are they actually afraid of? I think mostly it's the fear of being called racist, mm. which is so messed up, <laughs> especially when it's an indigenous woman who's been attacked. So it's, it's then racist to hold this indigenous man accountable, but apparently not racist at all to just leave this indigenous woman by herself to fight this fight that is so rampant and not just her life, but in the lives of so many indigenous women. So it is, it is that fear, I think, of being dismissed, of being called a racist. And I think that that's the reality of the world that we live in, that race and anti-racism is seen as the most important struggle. I did want to circle back to white feminism a little bit that I think obviously there's white women wanting to secure their own sort of power by proxy and all of that stuff. But there's such deep scholarship, whether you call it white feminism or whatever you want to call it, like there's such deep theoretical scholarship in feminism at this point. So to not be able to access it because it's deemed not good or some form of relative privileged feminism misses a lot. So I just want to hear your like thinking on that. Yeah. I, I mean, I have such a problem with the term white feminism and I think most, well, I would hope, well, yeah. not most feminists, but some feminists do as well. And so whenever I would do a, a guest lecture, I would start the class by asking the students what they know about radical feminism. And immediately hands would shoot up and 
women and men in the class would say, it's bigoted, it's racist, it's irrelevant, it's harmful. And you'd always have at least like one or two young women who were like, it's fucking awesome. And you're like, yeah. But for the most part, they were like, it's terrible, awful, outdated, bigoted mess. And then my second question will be like, well, what theories are we talking about? Like, what is the actual criticism? So you're saying it's bigoted where? <laughs> like, who said what? Who did what? Uh, and they weren't able to back up their claims. And they're not able to back up their claims because they're not actually being taught, don't have access necessarily to those texts. They're not being taught to really engage with them. And we also live in this culture now where we don't go to the source. We just hear what other people think about it. And that becomes the truth instead of critical thinking and going and reading it yourself and deciding for yourself what you think. So as I was going through and, and reading different texts from Indigenous feminists, it was a similar kind of problem where I was coming up against claims against white feminism. But I'm like, what do you mean white feminism? Because I mean, I agree that like liberal feminism that says sex work is work. Yeah, that's caused a lot of harm. I, I don't agree with that. I think it's a terrible idea and I think they're wrong. <laughs> but to call liberal feminism and radical feminism and to lump those things together into like white feminism and then dismiss it is a disservice. And what that does, and we can see that, like a, I think a very strong example of that was in the inquiry for murdered and disappeared Indigenous women in Canada. So after many, many years, many, many women fought very hard to have this national inquiry. We had the national inquiry. And a lot of things were really wrong with that national inquiry. One of the things was that they did a literature review. But all the literature reviews they did were on Indigenous reports, Indigenous research. A lot of it was degendered. So it's like, why aren't you looking at all of this incredible work and research that feminists have done to understand male violence against women and girls, how it functions, what we can do about it, statistics related to that. But none of that was considered as being relevant to this inquiry, which was fundamentally about male violence against women and girls. So how that plays out on a larger scale, it really does a disservice to women and to Indigenous women. And it also stunts basically our growth in terms of like theorizing and taking action because you ha we have this body of knowledge already. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? We don't have to start from nothing. We have this incredible work that we can engage with, agree with, disagree with, build on, right? it does ourselves a disservice to ignore all of that work that has come before. All over the world, people are taking parts and pieces of it and developing it further and so on. You know, it's helping to break patriarchal patterns all over the world. So, yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous, right? Like, it's, it's actually dangerous to the patriarchy. So that's why they don't want, <laughs> they want to dismiss it. Because it, it, again, I think feminism and the women's liberation movement is the only theory and movement 
that actually challenges patriarchy. And as a result, in addition to that, racism, classism, colonization, you know, all of those things. So it's a dangerous movement. And then, so I think that's why they really try and silence us or dismiss us in one way or another. Yeah. So you called it something else, not missing and murdered. Murdered and disappeared. Murdered and disappeared, which somehow seems more accurate. It was a like a full-on national inquiry, inquiry that lasted for about three years. Yeah. And I, I used the term murdered and disappeared instead of missing, missing and murdered, because I think like the women aren't just going missing into thin air. Like somebody's doing something to them. <laughs> Somebody, some dude is murdering them, some dude is disappearing them. So I, I I think that those terms are more accurate and that they acknowledge that there's somebody else in this action. Yeah, the perpetrator, the perpetrators disappear. Uh, mm -hmm. Was prostitution targeting Indigenous women part of this inquiry? No, not really. I mean, a little bit, but not in any kind of productive way. Like, oh, so they decided at the outset from the beginning of the inquiry that sex work is work. They just decided that. And that's, that's where they went <laughs> with any discussion, really, about prostitution. So they didn't include prostitution as a form of male violence against Indigenous women and girls. They would say things like, you know, it's the laws against prostitution that are the problem. It's problems with the police and policing prostitution, which, sure, there are definitely issues there. But they did not consider it a form of male violence against women and girls. So it was really disappointing. No, they didn't do a good job. They didn't do a good job with the whole thing? With the whole thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. What happened as well with the inquiry is, I guess a few months in, they decided to not make it about women and girls anymore, but to make it about Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQQIA+. I see. Yeah. So they really, they failed us. You know, well, and it's like women fought so hard for that. And we were, we got kicked out of our own stinking inquiry. <laughs> like, it's like you can't, like, it's not funny, but like Indigenous women are being murdered at, the rates are astronomical. And they're like, 2SLGBTQQIA plus people have it the worst, you know, they're the most oppressed. There's no body of research that demonstrates that yet. They recognize that in their own inquiry, yet they're making these kinds of statements. So they just, they really, they didn't look at forms of male violence against women and girls, and they decided not to make it about women and girls at the end of the day. So it was, uh, I think we need a do-over. What about, did they look at connections between the oil and fracking industries and all that kind of stuff or no? Yes, yeah. yes. There was some of that and that's that's really important and we need to be looking at that. Yet they'll look at that and they'll recognize the danger that these man camps represent to Indigenous women and girls in those areas and yet they'll still say sex work is work. They just want to hang on to prostitution for dear life. Mm -hmm. Like they just don't want to let go of that because it's such a powerful, it's such a powerful tool, mm -hmm. I think. So as part of your research, you took a trip to New Zealand to kind of meet with people there. 
And New Zealand is unique in the world, I believe, because they are completely decriminalized, Mm -hmm. maybe similar to Amsterdam or Germany. But at any rate, you had many different, very interesting experiences there. And I'd love to hear about some of what you found. Sure. So you're, you're right that New Zealand is unique in the world in its decriminalization of prostitution. I think Amsterdam and Germany have legalized it. So there's government regulations that regulate the industry. Whereas in New Zealand, that's not the case. However, it's not like a government, like a kind of a federal or overarching government, but each like municipalities and cities will have regulations concerning prostitution. What I learned was that from the get-go and in any discussion that they had about prostitution and about changing their laws was that the feminist analysis of prostitution as a form of male violence against women and girls was completely dismissed right at the beginning. They're like, this has no relevance to this issue. And so they continued talking about it in all kinds of other ways. And still today, it's it's very difficult. And that was what I what I discovered was that it's very difficult to find women to talk to because women are afraid. They're afraid of losing their jobs. They're afraid of other kinds of repercussions that might happen if somebody finds out that they're even just questioning their laws there. So I ended up having to do an anonymous survey because I couldn't find you know enough women to, to speak with. I mean, I knew that there were no exiting services, but there's no exiting services, nothing. Like I had thought maybe I could go, I had do what I did in Canada, which is go through like a rape crisis center or some other, you know, organization that helps women when they're attacked by men. But even those organizations in New Zealand see sex work as work. So there's nowhere to, for women to go where somebody is going to say to them, yeah, what happened to you is wrong. Like what he's doing to you is wrong. Do you want a better life? (laughs) Right? There's nowhere for women to go. And so kind of as a result of that, I, I didn't actively seek out women who were in prostitution or who had been in prostitution in New Zealand. And that's because I think at this point, it's kind of unethical to do research and to speak with women in prostitution in New Zealand because there is no way for them to get out. So if you go and you're talking to her and you're asking her to like rip open her wounds and tell you all of these horrible things that are being done to her on a daily basis and you're bringing up all of this just like layers and layers of like shit and pain and then you're like, bye, (laughs) like I'm going back to my country now and you just leave her there. With what? With who? What kind of support can she get? So maybe she'll decide, yeah, I don't want to be in prostitution anymore, but where's she going to go? Or maybe she decides, yeah, I want to get some help. I'm having all kinds of feelings, and but where is she going to go to be able to speak with somebody who understands prostitution as a form of male violence? In my mind, it's just not because there is nowhere for her to turn to get out. Because you can't just, well, you shouldn't, people do drop in there, parachute in there, take what you want, and then leave. You leave this like trail of destruction when you're asking women to reveal very, very difficult and intimately horrific details of things that have been done to them. It's not right. 
Right. And you have to presume that they're under control of someone, potentially, and or if it's decriminalized, they can't really go to the police either, can they? They can technically for like if they were punched in the face, for example, or Uh. stabbed, they can go to the police for that. What I learned in the Netherlands actually was that a woman goes to the police station and there's the men that are paying her for sex because it would be policemen too. They'd be allowed to go do that. And then the judge that she goes in front of, maybe he's somebody who's paid her for sex too at some point. You know what I mean? So like it's, there's this idea that women can go to the police. We say that in Canada too, right? If you've been raped or assaulted, you can go to the police, but it doesn't mean they're going to believe you. (laughs) And it doesn't mean they're going to do their job. And that is a point that I make in my book as well, like how police really uphold the patriarchy. It's so important why we have women's groups and women's organizations. Because when you do reach out for help, like you're more likely to get a better response and you have other women that you can talk things through with and rant with and cry with and whatever it is you need to do. So it is really important, so important to have that. But when you have like a a country like New Zealand that basically has a total misunderstanding, whether intentional or not, or no understanding of male violence against women, what it is and how it functions. I mean, that just puts women in even more danger. And so, you know, seeing that as somebody coming in from the outside, you know, and then realizing how hard it is for women from there to be openly critical of prostitution. It almost sounds like a taboo subject. Yeah, taboo in that you can only talk about it this one way, right? You can only say sex work is work. Another example of what they do in New Zealand, the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, they said that there was no trafficking in New Zealand because they had gone to women who were suspected of being trafficked and asked them if they were trafficked and the women said no. So therefore, they weren't trafficked. And I'm like, no, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, no. If you had any understanding of prostitution as a form of male violence against women and an understanding of what male violence against women is and how it functions, you would not draw your conclusions from this. I mean, to me, that just demonstrates a total lack of knowledge on how to work with women who are victims of male violence. The other thing that I've noticed is they'll recategorize it. The representative from the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective saying that There was no or very little or no child sexual exploitation because what that actually was when fathers were pimping out their daughters, like that's actually domestic violence. That's family violence. That's not sex trafficking or the sexual exploitation of children. So it's like totally reclassifying what it is and they can present this like squeaky clean image I think that's like just such a perfect example of why language is so powerful. Like language gives us the framework to understand everything in our world. And so you reclassify it just like Mm -hmm. you reclassify sex work or trans women or women or Mm -hmm. like if you change the language around it, it is powerful stuff. It has the power to make it go away, to make child sexual abuse go away, Mm -hmm. calling it family violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank I love you. It feels more like a conversation, which I like, kind of. Yeah. I, sometimes I blab on, so sorry if I did that, but... No, I love it's blabbing It's been wonderful yeah. talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. Beware of Darkness.